0: hello everyone and welcome to the memetic exegete podcast i'm your host simon skidmore in our study of the book of exodus we've seen israel liberated from their egyptian oppressors now free from egypt's laws and customs the israelites must develop their own culture rules and rituals the lord warns the israelites that if they disregard his laws and statutes they will experience a mimetic crisis similar to that seen in the Exodus narrative. In the last episode, we considered some of Israel's laws as a means of controlling mimetic rivalry within the community. We saw that managing this rivalry often takes precedence over other modern legal principles such as justice and human dignity. The same focus continues throughout Israel's laws. Let's pick up the story now in Exodus chapter 21 verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty sequels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. In the first scenario, an ox is stoned because it kills someone, while the owner, the owner is not held accountable. While some have argued that the ox is considered morally culpable, mimetic theory provides a more plausible social solution. Notice that in verse 28, the ox is stoned rather than slain like animals which are preferred for food or sacrifices. As we continue our study throughout the Pentateuch we shall see that stoning is a collective ritual which allows the entire community to vent their collective rivalries upon a single scapegoat. As Gerard writes, all members of the community can and should throw stones at the victim. Everyone participates in the destruction of the anathema. The group alone is responsible individuals share the same degree of innocence and responsibility. You may recall that when the community band together against Moses, he complains to the Lord that they are almost ready to stone him. With this in mind, the curious detail of stoning an ox suggests that the ox becomes a scapegoat in this scenario. With the entire weight of guilt transferred to the ox, its owner can no longer be considered liable. The ox's flesh may not be eaten, because as a communal scapegoat it is considered anathema. With the ox's death, rivalry is purged from the community and peace and order restored. The next scenario shares the blame between the ox and its owner because this person knew about the ox's tendency to gorge and neglected to protect it from others. In this case, the owner's perceived guilt threatens to spark a blood feud within the community as the victim's family seek vengeance. To defuse this situation, the community vent their collective rivalries upon both the ox and its owner, stoning both of them. After this event, the community experiences peace and order, which confirms the perpetrator's guilt and legitimates the community's actions, at least in their own minds. With that said, verse 30 adds the possibility that the master may ransom his own life with money. In all likelihood, this verse represents a later addition to the law, from a time when the legislator felt that lesser penalty of monetary fine was sufficient to stifle the rivalry between the perpetrator and the victim's family. In any case, the focus of this law is to protect the community by managing mimetic rivalry between the negligent ox owner and the victim's family. One of the conundrums in this passage is the way the life of a slave is only worth 30 shekels of silver, while the death of a free person attracts a healthy ransom or even a death penalty. Again, it seems clear that upholding universal human dignity and justice is not exactly the focus of this passage. More important to the legislator is the potential rivalry between two men when one's ox gores and kills the other's servant. To defuse this rivalry, the passage commands that the owner of the ox pay the servant's master 30 pieces of silver, that is, the full price of a human slave. In this way, the servant's master receives appropriate monetary reparation for the years of service lost through the slave's death. The passage seems unconcerned whether the ox has a habit of goring or not, when determining the appropriate reparation for killing a slave. In this situation, the law concerned with stifling the potential rivalry between the slave master and the ox's owner. Why is the law not concerned with stifling rivalry between the ox's master and the victim's, that is the slave's, family? Perhaps a different social standing between these two groups ensures any rivalry between them remains externally mediated. In other words, although a victim's family may resent the ox's owner, their diminished social status means they cannot engage in any sort of meaningful rivalry with the perpetrator. Again, these laws protect the community from mimetic crises by focusing upon minimising potential mimetic rivalries. In what follows, we see various laws demanding that reparation be made for the destruction of property. Through this reparation, potential mimetic rivalries between community members are stifled. Reading on now from verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or a man digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another, so that it dies, and they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast is also what they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and the owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it, he shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun rises on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that it is the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to the neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, The case of both parties shall come before God, the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbour. If a man gives his neighbour a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between both of them to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbour's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beast, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner, not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a young woman who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for young women. In each of these laws, someone's actions destroys the property of another. For this reason, reparation must be made to the injured party. The man who seduces a young woman must pay reparation to her father, because a young unmarried woman's sexuality belongs to her father. Whether or not the father gives his daughter to the man in marriage, the bride price must be paid as reparation for the transgression. Again, the focus of these laws appears to be stifling potential mimetic rivalry between males within the community. The case of the thief who breaks in is also particularly interesting. If this thief is struck so that he dies, there is no blood guilt for him. In other words, the owner is not liable for the thief's blood. if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt. So there's this idea, if there's a thief in the night, and that person is struck down and killed, there's no guilt. It's almost like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's like a home invasion gone wrong, if you like. And the owner of the home is not held liable. But if it happens through the day, for some reason, they are held liable. And... I don't exactly know why. I think this is a really challenging verse. One plausible solution that has been offered is that the passage assumes that theft happens at night. Thieves break in under the cover of darkness. In other words, if someone's going to steal something, they will do it at night. And for that reason, they're assumed guilty and the owner, maybe disorientated, maybe woken up from their sleep, not thinking straight, accidentally strikes the guy, the owner is not held liable. There's a certain compassion there for this homeowner whose home has been invaded and whose property has been violated. He's not held accountable. Now maybe when the sun rises, the idea is that, well, thieves are not going to come in, in the. In the light of day and because everyone will see what they're doing they'll get caught and maybe the assumption is that that person is not actually trying to steal something if the Sun is there and the Sun has risen on them then they were never there to steal something in the first place and this law stops people killing someone in their own property and saying oh that's right they were trying to steal something of mine Maybe that's one solution that it, this distinction between nighttime and daytime decides whether the thief was truly there trying to steal something or whether it's just someone who was there through the day and the owner is trying to frame them falsely. To take it a step further and view this idea from a mimetic perspective, the thief who breaks in at night. Is under the cover of darkness in other words we've seen this idea of darkness throughout the bible in our studies we've seen this idea that mimetic rivalry blinds people to their actions and the consequences of their actions if this thief is breaking in in that sort of place there's mimetic blindness this guy is in direct conflict direct rivalry with the owner and we're told there shall be no blood guilt in that scenario But in the other scenario, the sun has risen on him. It's like saying there's no excuse for the owner. The owner in this case can see clearly. He can see who the perpetrator is. There's no need for him to strike him down. He is not consumed with mimetic rivalry or violence. And for this reason, the owner of the property will be held liable for his bloodshed. Let's read the next couple of laws now from verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. These three laws leave behind money reparation to identify potential scapegoats within the community. Verse 18 prescribes the execution of the sorceress in Hebrew, Kashepha. The masculine form of this word kasheph was used to describe Pharaoh's magicians who opposed Moses back in the Exodus narrative. With this in mind, the Kashefar describes a female magician who operates within a rival cult. In so doing, the Kashefar represents a rival to the socio-religious order promoted by the writer of this passage. Locked in a rivalry with this group, The Exodus legislator and the kashephar become doubles of one another, as each double comes to view the other as a monster. Consumed with mimetic rivalry, the legislator demands the execution of the kashephar, who is viewed as a threat to the community's well-being. Those who sacrifice to other gods are also viewed as a threat to the community, and for this reason they must also be executed. We have already mentioned that the community must rally around the Lord, the God of mimetic rivalry. If other gods are worshipped, the community may become fractured by conflict between rival cults. With this in mind, the legislator attempts to unite the community under the Lord by inciting mob violence against those who worship other deities. In this manner, the legislator attempts to make the kashe and those who worship other deities communal scapegoats by inciting violence against them. The other law concerns those who engage in sexual relations with an animal. Again, these people are community scapegoats, but why? Because sex with animals is gross. Keep in mind that the community selection of a scapegoat is not a calm, logical decision. It's easy to lose sight of this fact when we speak about the scapegoat being identified as a threat to the community. In reality, though, the community selection of a human scapegoat is an emotionally driven exercise in the emotionally heightened setting of a mimetic crisis. The human emotion of disgust is powerful and may direct the community's search for a scapegoat. If certain acts such as bestiality invoke disgust with the community, then it may become a distinguishing mark that identifies a potential scapegoat within a mimetic crisis. Remember that scapegoats are arbitrarily chosen on the basis of such marks. With this in mind, it should not surprise us that the person who engages in sexual relations with an animal is sentenced to death, even though they pose no threat to the community's well-being whatsoever. Sometimes scapegoats are just scapegoats, a person upon whom the community may vent their mimetic riot. Reading on now from verse 12. You shall not wrong a sojourner or suppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them, and you shall not exact interest from them. If you ever take your neighbour's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. If the previous laws marked potential scapegoats for persecution, then this passage protects certain vulnerable people from the same fate. Notice that anti-scapegoating begins with empathy. You shall do no wrong to a sojourner because you were once sojourners. The rhetorical question concerning the poor man's lack of clothing to sleep in also prompts empathy from the reader. The legislator's strategy is to make the reader identify with these poor, marginal people in the hope of garnering mercy and grace the people should imitate the Lord's attitude of care and compassion towards the poor and marginalized. If somebody fails to show compassion to these people, the Lord will break out in violence against that person. In other words, the community who have empathy and compassion for the poor and oppressed will recompense the perpetrator for their lack of compassion as they become a communal scapegoat. From a mimetic perspective, this law concerning the sojourner is extremely important because it represents a huge breakthrough in thinking. No longer are we talking about us versus them, the tribal identity of Israel versus the dangerous outsider, but we're talking about Israel being for these sojourners, these people who are among them, and they're not part of them. They're people who come from other countries, perhaps Egypt, perhaps other nations who are around them. And these people are poor, they're marginalized, they're vulnerable, and they're obviously not a threat to the community's well-being. This is a huge breakthrough for the israelite legislators to protect the rights of these people they could be easily exploited they could be easily taken for a ride but the legislator puts their foot down and says you know what if you take advantage of these poor foreigners then we will turn on you so there's this outward sending of empathy towards those who are not israelites this is huge for a tribal culture who identifies themselves as they rally around their deity, adhere to certain laws and statutes, and then they define their community by those boundary markers over and against the other. So here is one of those others. Here is one of those people who are not one of them, who don't belong to them. And yet the legislator is still asking the Israelite community to treat them with care and compassion. From a memetic's perspective, this is huge. Because it begins to look beyond tribal boundaries towards a more universal concept of human hope and worth. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.